Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're going to be discussing one of the fundamental areas of sleep surgery and that is maxillomandibular advancement surgery. Uh, we have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Stanley Liu, who is an oral maxillofacial surgeon with subspecialty training in sleep surgery. And so, Dr. Liu, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, John, thank you very, very much. I'm really excited to be here from, from California to, to really share this topic where I'm going to do my best to put this procedure within the context of all the advances that our mentors and everybody has made in terms of comprehensive care. Uh, for our sleep surgical patients. So thank you for having me. So I just want to start off by asking you about the history of MMA and maybe also if you could just give some context as to broadly, where is MMA fitting into the management of OSA in adults right now? So again, MMA, a very iconic procedure, uh, you know, in sleep surgery, uh, which is a part of a continuum of care for OSA that, you know, readily incorporates medical, dental, pharmacologic, uh, and behavioral therapy. The mechanism for OSA is complex. There are certainly non-anatomic contributors, such as arousal threshold, loop gain, that are really not altered by surgery. So all surgery for OSA affects uh, what we call the PCRIT, or the critical negative closing pressure of the upper airway during sleep. So again, you know, upon inspiration, the diaphragm, um, you know, uh, you breathe in, and, and the lateral pharyngeal wall, or the airway, you know, tends to want to collapse and the upper airway muscles um, are, you know, they're responsible for dilating and counteracting that force, essentially. So whatever surgery it is, um, you know, that's, that's the goal. If, that, if the surgery were to be effective, it needs to be able to counteract uh, that force. Uh, and MMA, MMA tends to be a very, very uh, strong one. Originally, in the phased protocol, so the phased approach, you know, part one and part two. So phase one was the classic uh, UPPP or UV flap and genial glosses advancement. Uh, and then phase two uh, would be the MMA or the maxillomandibular advancement. Uh, and that's, that's classically where it fit in. And this phased approach developed in the early 90s uh, really had two premises. Uh, one is that uh, multi-level surgery for the airway is always more effective than surgery at a single level. Hence, you know, the nasal, the UPPP, and the genioglossus, which was what the original phased approach liked to use. And then after a sleep study for the non-responders, phase two then would be the MMA. And when you're talking about phases here, you're referring to the Stanford uh, sleep surgery algorithm? Yes. So the classic, uh, so Powell and Riley um, uh, algorithm. Okay. And yeah, maybe just kind of building off that and transitioning more to patient presentation and that sort of thing. What is the typical patient you're seeing um, nowadays with OSA that you start to think, you know, MMA might be a good fit for this person? So in general, there are three main categories. And I should say that, you know, the original Stanford uh, phase protocol uh, if I may use an analogy here, you know, it was sort of the, the classic approach to sleep apnea in that, you know, think of it as, as almost like a football game, right? And there is a de definitive touchdown marker, okay? The, the AHI less than five, or if you want, the shares criteria for surgical success. And you kind of do this phased approach in order to score a touchdown, in order to get your AHI less than five. And of course, you win the game and a sleep, a sleep apnea never comes back. And you know that's not true. And so the, the MMA remains a very critical piece in sort of a more modern day contemporary approach that is a lot more continuous. And that is to say that it, it's not this linear approach. And it's n the goal is not just about, you know, a success criteria that we define uh, purely based on the AHI. Okay. So within the new context and the new uh, paradigm, if you will, the new uh, protocol. The three main groups of patients that we begin to think about the, uh, the MMA include, well, we'll start with one, which is the classic. Uh, so say they were non-responders to phase one surgery, still have significant sleep apnea, uh, and then you, you think about phase two, uh, which is the MMA. A second category, of course, is sleep apnea of any severity, 
uh, where the, the patient has a comorbid dental facial deformity, meaning they have some kind of jaw uh, misalignment. So you're essentially tackling two issues uh, with one procedure. Number three, actually, would be based more on dynamic airway phenotyping. And that is to say that we have found the MMA to be very effective in addressing patients who have concurrent, uh, and the key here is concurrent, uh, concurrent concentric collapse of the velum and lateral pharyngeal wall collapse that is seen during drug-induced sleep endoscopy. We found the MMA to be very reliable in reversing that pattern. So these three sort of indicators, you know, if the patient were to walk in with that type of history or that examination, we begin to think about the MMA. And if we think about the procedure itself, maxillomandibular advancement, mechanistically, how is it leading to improved airway during sleep for patients? And, you know, it's a really good question. And, and, and um, you know, if I may go into a little bit of history here. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Classically, uh, on imaging, what did people like to use to look at, you know, sleep apnea patients or to, to assess uh, something like the MMA? You're talking about like lateral cephalometric data? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? That lateral ceph from day one was popular and, and, and for good reasons because it's, it, it's cheap, it's got very little radiation, and it does give good information, right? It gives good information about either the mandibular to the hyoid distance. It gives great information about the posterior nasal spine to the palatal length, right? Uh, so it, it, it is good. Now, the problem with that, and this is the problem with sleep in general, you cannot use any single modality, whether it's imaging or uh, endoscopic examination, you can't use anything in by itself, you know, and make broad sweeping claims. So if you look at the lateral ceph before and after the MMA, you'll see this huge airway space behind the tongue. And so the MMA tends to get classified as a hypopharyngeal surgery it tends to be classified as such that, oh, look, there's this big airway space behind the tongue. Okay. So a couple of years ago, when I started systematically looking at the MMA before uh, and after, okay, with a drug-induced sleep endoscopy, I got a totally different view about this. When you look at the airway now dynamically before and after the MMA, what you discover is it's about the stability of the velum and the stability of the lateral pharyngeal wall uh, that predicts for success. And that does make sense because if you were to look at this operation, you know, if you think about the lateral ceph, it's one mid-sagittal slice, okay? It is not looking at things in different views. And what's funny is when you look at publications that came afterwards, whether they use CT scan or MRI, they still like to use that mid-sagittal slice. And yes, based on that, you get the sense that the MMA, uh, what it does is it creates this huge room and, and it creates this huge space behind the tongue. But when you look at it under sleep endoscopy, you get a whole different appreciation for it, especially the stability of the lateral pharyngeal wall. So now let's break it down a little bit. When you move the jawbones, the MMA in its essence is moving the jawbones to treat a soft tissue problem, is to treat an upper airway problem. So the, the skeleton, the maxillomandibular skeleton is moved in such a way so that the airway is uh, stabilized, right? Remember what I mentioned, counteracting that negative critical closing pressure. And in the end, that's how it works. It strengthens your levator muscle, your tensor muscle, your palatal glosses, uh, your superhyoid muscles. That's essentially what it's doing. And so really important as from a, from a conceptual standpoint, really important to assess any procedure you do with multiple, not only with multiple modalities, so imaging, endoscopy, but looking at your modalities in, in you know, as comprehensively as possible. So veer away from just the lateral seth, but look at it in the coronal view, look at it from an axial view and correlate that with your sleep study, and correlate that with your endoscopic examination. If we could transition now to workup, 
Um, when you're seeing a patient who you're working up for potentially undergoing MMA, what is going through your mind in terms of the history and um, physical exam, particularly the, the craniofacial exam um, when you're seeing these patients? Yeah, I'll offer a few interesting you know, clinical pearls uh, here, if you will. First of all, you want to be a great historian. So, so what I mean is the examination of the patient. Now, I'll, I'll use one example to make it a little bit less you know, nebulous here. Let's say the nasal exam. Well, we, know, we all know how to do the nasal exam. You're, you're, you're going to use your rhinoscopy. You're going to you know, scope the patient, uh, etc. You're going to assess for allergies. You're going to do all of the above. But a nasal examination begins, you know, from seeing the patient and, and hearing uh, the story. Because one thing I, you know, I tell patients all the time, right, it, sleep apnea is not an infection. It's not like you, you just got it yesterday. I mean, maybe you got your sleep study yesterday and discovered that you have, you know, severe sleep apnea. But this is a developmental issue. And aberrant facial skeletal growth that's corrected very well by the MMA as an example, is a result of things like chronic mouth breathing. And, you know, what's a typical phenotype? You know, we talk about the adenoid facies, right? Where, you know, the patient doesn't breathe nasally, right? And they're mouth breathers and, and whatnot. And they end up developing these very narrow jaws. And then they develop, you know, a, a retrusive mandible. And if your orthodontist doesn't do you a favor, and instead of letting the lower jaw grow, they hold it back with a face gear or something. Now you have a patient where their upper jaw and lower jaw are now severely hypoplastic. So being a, a good historian is very important. That does include the sleep history and includes also a history of, you know, I mean, we'll do all the routine stuff, right? You'll do, you know, their past medical, their past surgical but actually, it's also important to, to ask them, like, how they were sleeping as kids. Did they, you know, were they ever, you know, diagnosed with ADHD? Did they have a long protracted course of orthodontic treatment? You know, that always rings a bell. Like, if, if an orthodontist had to take years to correct a bite, something was going on that's not quite normal, okay? Now, you know, things like headgear, meaning it, it's kind of a contraption that the orthodontists use to hold back jaw development. Okay, all these things you do want to capture in the initial workup. After getting that history, yes, you do correlate it with the sleep study, but, but remember that the sleep study is merely a part of the entire uh, workup, right? Because, for example, your young patients, right, young patients like yourself or your female patients before menopause, it is unlikely that they're going to come up, you know, show up with a, a large, you know, a, a high AHI where you kind of start thinking about these more aggressive surgical options because it, it, it doesn't capture it very, very well. But it doesn't mean that they're not expending a whole lot of effort keeping their air, airway open during sleep and not complaining about fatigue the next day. So being a great historian, you know, when I, when I do my assessment, I spend the vast majority of my time trying to elicit the history of their sleep, the history of uh, various uh, treatment as I have outlined uh, before, then, of course, going through my, you know, endoscopic examination, uh, intraoral examination. And I do not routinely, you know, use imaging in my practice. I don't. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really add a whole lot. Uh, in, in reality, at least not immediately. There, there are situations where we need it and we can go into that. But I, I would stress that being that great historian will point your way uh, to, to thinking about it more holistically. And what about the role for drug-induced sleep endoscopy here? You had mentioned it a little bit already, but... Yeah. For the older patients, and we're talking about, well, middle-aged males, although I kind of... <laughs> You know, I say that, and I'm, I'm a middle-aged male, so okay, fine. You know, for the older patient, right? You're seeing years of negative pressure. You're seeing, so, so when you do a sleep endoscopy, you know, you may encounter these very challenging patients with concurrent concentric collapse at the velum and lateral pharyngeal wall collapse. This is tough. You know, a very nice study out of Detroit a number of years ago, and even in the recent uh, multi-center uh, study that I was part of, you know, where we looked at uh, surgical success uh, pre and post and, you know, examining it with pre and post drug induced sleep endoscopy, 
lateral pharyngeal wall collapse is a very difficult phenotype to treat. And so if you encounter that as you are doing your dice, you know, you see your concentric and lateral pharyngeal wall, you know, you might want to do a little chin lift and get a sense of, whoa, you know, with a chin lift, that lateral pharyngeal wall stabilizes, right? That, that patient may be a very, very good MMA patient. Now, in a younger patient, yeah, that may not hold true. When you do dice on a younger patient who actually needs the MMA, what you see is that they're able to hold the lateral pharyngeal wall, but you've got a tongue that is so big that, and again, it's not the tongue's fault. You know, really, it, it's a house is too small. Uh, you know, the jaw, uh, you know, the intraoral volume is too small. So what you end up seeing is the tongue really occupies uh, any airway space there is. And you can see the hypoglossal nerve and the genioglossus muscle at work. You will see the tongue kind of, you know, push forward, push forward. And then after a couple of episodes, it, it tires out and it collapses into the airway. And the patient, you know, uh, has an arousal. So anyways, these are some of the things that the sleep endoscopy really does help us in phenotyping the patients. And you mentioned you don't routinely get imaging, but there were some circumstances where you might. Can you tell us about those? Absolutely. Imaging only comes into play when you are going to do a surgery that involves a jawbone. So whether it's the MMA or the maxillary expansion procedure, which uh, we also pioneered here, where I started doing these, um, you know, so the idea is to expand the maxilla of the patient with a narrow and high arch palate, or you're doing a genioglossus advancement and you want to basically, and again, I published this as well, to use, you know, to design a guide, right? To, to show you where you want to make the cuts so that you will capture the genioglossus muscle reliably uh, and avoid, you know, getting into the mental nerve. And nowadays you even have 3D printed plates. And so imaging only comes into play when you're, actually going to do a procedure involving the jawbone. Otherwise, if you think about it, there's not a whole lot of value getting an imaging study. And, w and when you're looking at like virtual surgical planning and um, kind of a, trying to evaluate some of the imaging that you do sometimes get preoperatively, are there any key areas that on when you're reviewing those studies that you like to be mindful of or, or look at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the advantage, of course, of virtual surgical planning, uh, as you know, is, 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 is that you can, you can simulate the movements and see you know, how, it, how it works out, you know, whether certain rotations or whatnot, are you getting the advancement that you need? I'll start with a, a more uh, straightforward example in the genioglossus uh, advancement. You know, if you're able to, because no one really, I mean, I know there are studies published where, you know, you take a ruler and you measure and, and you know, you can predict the location of the genioglossus attachment, but nothing's better than taking a CT and literally you can draw, right, on, on the CT scan where the upper limits of your cut is and the lower limits of your cut. And if you want to include the genioplasty with it to improve the patient's uh, facial balance, yeah, you can do that. Uh, you can draw it out. And, you know, you'll, you'll get a guide, if you will. Uh, and then that's where you make your osteotomies. And now with the MMA, I mentioned the rotation because really in this day and age, especially the MMA, and the MMA itself is, is a bit of a misnomer, maxillomandibular advancement. That's like, you know, assuming that we, we advance uh, everybody. And it's not entirely true. We do advance critical landmarks that has to do with the airway. But I'm telling you that we can advance a class one, class two, or class three patient. There's never a setback needed. And then let me come back to that point a little bit later. But anyways, with virtual surgical planning, you can plan this thing out as if you're doing the procedure. And you can make guides and splints that guide your procedure uh, how you like. So I, I do think that has been a major uh, game changer in, in our field. And the last part of the workup, at least, that I wanted to ask you about was the dental models, obtaining those preoperatively. Any comment on that? Yeah. You know, the greatest thing about dental models is you no longer have to put the patient in a, a, an annoying ouch and an impression of pouring up stone models. Most orthodontic or dental offices, uh, or you can send them to a dental imaging center where they have an intraoral scanner. So you just imagine a little camera 
they'll take a picture basically an intraoral scan and they can merge that with your ct scan and then you you kind of do your virtual surgical planning from there i have never ever used basically a still model ever since that that era is long gone with an intraoral scan and a ct scan you can do all of this remotely you know so like you know as a, as a sort of a, a tertiary referral center we have patients or say if you were treating a patient from out of state or whatnot in the post-covid era you can have the patient actually get a ct scan and an intraoral scan from where they are and design the entire operation, you know, without touching the patient and, and, and whatnot. Okay. So that part of it has also helped us quite a bit. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And I guess just, you know, transitioning now, just maybe before moving on to the surgery itself, but trying to tie together this workup and patient presentation and whatnot, could we just review the current indications for MMA? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this I, I actually have published in a number of texts, including, you know, sleep medicine and, and whatnot. And, and again, three major categories. One is you can go with the, the, the classic route, the phased approach. Uh, you can do a, a nasal surgery, a utropopia of your liking, whether it's uvulopalo flap, whether it's relocation pharyngoplasty, a barbed pharyngoplasty, whichever one you choose, and then something for the tongue base. Now, classically for Stanford, again, you know, the Stanford protocol was the genioglossus advancement. But you can say, well, the patient has huge lingual tonsils and you decided to do TORS or you want to do copulation, tongue base, you know, uh, procedures, what have you. Just remember that you want to make it, you know, multi-level. Okay, so then you would get a sleep study about six months later. And if the patient's not improved, you go for the MMA. The second one would be whether it's mild, moderate, or severe sleep apnea. If they concurrently have a jaw problem, where well, you're going to do the MMA because you're going to fix two things at once. And remind me to come back to this point, actually, after this question, because there's a really key point here. And then number three, of course, is when you do your uh, sleep endoscopy and you find the patient with both concurrent concentric collapse of the velum and lateral pharyngeal wall collapse, then you gotta you, you got to give the MMA a thought. Those, for me, are the three main indications that I've been writing, uh, again, in, in, in textbook chapters of uh, various uh, specialties. I've read a little bit about an AHI greater than 65 or um, that sort of thing. What, how, how does that fit into the indications? Well, especially for uh, older patients, per se. And here we bring in, of course, you know, upper airway stimulation uh, or hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Uh, of which we currently only have one that's FDA approved, uh, and it's the Inspire. And you know the Inspire has a, a range, right, the 15 to, to 65 in terms of the AHI as a criteria. Of course, it also has a criteria for uh, the BMI, which we didn't mention, but it is important. Believe it or not, uh, in my opinion, there is a very, there's a very important similarity between upper airway stimulation and the MMA. That's crazy, right? I mean, because they, they look like such vastly different procedures. But I classify both as extra pharyngeal surgery, meaning you're, you're kind of doing things indirectly, aren't you, right? With the MMA, you're moving the jaw bones to strengthen the dilator muscles to help them expand and counteract negative pressure. With the hypoglossal nerve stimulation, you are doing something to stimulate the hypoglossal nerve at the right time to strengthen the genioglossus. But the key is that genioglossus muscle has to drive the tongue, that has to drive the lateral pharyngeal wall muscles, and you know what they are, and drive open the velum, which is also why you rule out the concentric guys because it's very hard to do that. They're both extrapharyngeal surgery. In fact, if you think about it, CPAP itself is extrapharyngeal. Intrapharyngeal would be things like utriple P, tongue base, where you actually are intervening on the dilator muscles themselves, okay? So um, uh, the 65 limit there is in a situation where, say you had a patient where they had an AHI uh, greater than 65. And what are you going to do about that? You could do phase one bring them down, right, uh, below 65, 
uh, they probably have concentric collapse, and you can correct with the pharyngoplasty, and we publish that in uh, laryngoscope. Uh, and then you you then uh, use upper airway uh, stimulation. So if you look at the new uh, Stanford algorithm, it incorporates all of these uh, as a group because the key in the end is it's not about surgical success in with any one particular procedure. Uh, sometimes it's about combining these procedures to achieve what I call treatment success. And I guess on the on the flip side of this, you know, we talking talking about indications, but also could we touch on the contraindications? That we you kind of mentioned this with some of the age discussion, but um, anything specific on that? I think age tends to be an issue, and age is not so much an issue from a surgical standpoint. You know, you 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 can operate on someone who's sixty some years old and uh, have them you know go through the MMA with a a smooth recovery. But the, again, the key about the MMA is after you move the jaw bones, the upper airway muscles have to remodel properly. In a young patient, for some reason, it just seems to happen naturally. So if you look at the systematic reviews, certainly the younger the patient, the better the result. And that's fine. So, you know, age is not an absolute contraindicator, but it's something that you want to keep in mind. Other things. You know, patients with connective tissue disease, um, I've encountered a number of patients with ehlers Danlos and whatnot. Those are probably not the best patients you want to do uh, skeletal surgery for because you are not sure if, you know, their uh, temporomandibular joint and whatnot will, will handle change in the mechanics uh, um, as such. The other one, of course, again, not an absolute contraindication, but BMI. You know that past 32, uh, your success rate continues to to go down. So at some point, you want to enlist either medical or surgical weight loss teams to help you uh, with that. So those are key. And, uh, you know, in clinic, in reality, I tell my, my patients, you know, two things. If you don't like, don't think about the MMA. One is you don't like the numbness of the chin. So we're talking about V3 paresthesia. V3 paresthesia is discussed in orthognathic surgery uh, literature, but inadequately in MMA literature. And I want to make a really important distinction right here. When you do orthognathic surgery, orthognathic surgery essentially means, you know, straightening of the jaws. So... That's using a bone surgery to treat a bone problem, right? So whether it's malocclusion or misalignment of the jaws and whatnot. With the the MMA, you're using bony surgery to treat a soft tissue problem. That is the airway. So, you know, key point there being that with MMA surgery, you're trying, you're advancing a lower jaw bone on average, you know, one to one and a half, sometimes to two centimeters, What I learned is that the jawbone, you know, you can fixate well. The muscles will stretch and strengthen. That's what you want. But unfortunately, your inferior alveolar nerve won't stretch with you. And they're going to have numbness for quite a long time in the chin. That is unlike teenagers getting, you know, jaw surgery. Okay. So that's one deal breaker there. If you don't want your jaw, you know, your chin and literally the chin, not the motor movement, but just sensation wise, if you don't like it being numb for a long time or potentially parts of, parts of it forever, or if you have a problem with the fact that your facial profile will change, while it's usually for the better, but anyway, if you don't want it to change, then you don't want to consider uh, the MMA surgery as well. And before we transition to more of the nuts and bolts around the surgery itself, did you want to make one more comment on that? one piece with indications there? So two points I want to make there. One is that be very suspicious. If a patient comes in with jaw misalignment, that they have sleep apnea. Um, because, you know, if we think about this as a developmental issue, so imagine, so so again, and I gave a, a talk at Facebook about this. If you think about the progression of this, right? Um, you have a kid, okay? And so child borns with huge tonsils and they're mouth breathing. What happens is you you end up with very narrow upper jaws. 
the misalignment begins with the fact that the patient never established nasal breathing from day one. So be uh, very suspicious when you see patients where their occlusion is misaligned, that it is actually a breathing issue at work there. And then the second point really I want to mention is that the MMA is not orthognathic surgery, okay? Or, you know, a lot of oral surgeons would talk about it like, well, I know how to do with the MMA. It's about put, pushing the jaw forward. No, 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 it's not. It absolutely isn't. Because if that's the case, you will never be able to treat a class three patient, right? A class three patient being someone with a lower jaw more forward than the upper jaw. then of course, you know, you want to move the upper jaw forward and bring the lower jaw back. And that is entirely not correct. With proper rotation of the procedure, you can actually bring back the occlusion, but advance the airway. Yes, it's possible. So the MMA is, again, as I stress, it's a bony surgery to treat a soft tissue problem. And that's very different than orthognathic surgery, which is doing a bony surgery to treat a bony problem. So anyway, I just want to make sure that that distinction is made. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't think about orthognathic issues. We will treat the bite. I mean, we'll make sure the bite's perfect. You have virtual surgical planning. You have all that intraoral scanning thing that I've mentioned to you that we can make sure that happens. But the airway is very much in the realm of our, uh, you know, uh, expertise uh, and our specialty. Okay, and if we transition maybe to talking more about the surgery, I, I wanted to start or at least ask you a little bit about patient counseling. You've talked a little bit about the chin numbness already, the cosmesis issues. Any other key points surrounding patient counseling that you like to address? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, recovery is a very funky thing, you know, about the MMA. You, let's say we do, you know, tonsillectomy and palopharyngoplasty. And, you know, it's about two to three weeks of pretty bad pain, but then it ends there, right? Well, the MMA is not like that. You'll never have intense pain like that. But if your idea of recovery uh, is to be able to do a T-bone steak, then we, we, we've got issues because it takes some time, at least for me, to release you from being able to uh, chew properly. So really, the things you counsel the patient, and this is literally the category that I go through, in order of their complaints. Pain is not an issue. I can tell you that most of my patients, especially uh, younger patients, uh, two days post-op, they're not on narcotic pain meds. Okay? Pain is not going to be your problem. Uh, I talk about it with them, but hangriness is going to be a problem. Because you're going to do a liquid diet for two weeks. Now, the liquid diet is not so much that we don't want them to use their jaws. It's also that they have wounds in the mouth, right? All of the MMA approaches the wounds inside of the mouth uh, for the majority. And so, uh, you know, if you start eating food and food falls into, you know, your wounds and you can't clean them, you know, that creates problems. So that's one thing. Um, you have to counsel them on nasal congestion because going through the fort means that your maxillary sinuses are blood filled for the first two weeks. And then, you, you know, it clots and then it breaks down. So all of these things are, are tough uh, for the patient. You have to talk about the numbness. And no matter really what you do, the chin, and when we talk about the chin, we're talking about the, the, the sort of the portion between, say, canine to canine. It's always going to feel uh, more numb than the rest of your face. So you want to institute, you know, biofeedback exercises early so that the brain gets used to the fact that this is the new normal. So the counseling for the MMA post-op includes all of these things. Uh, I'll give you a funky, a funny example. I mean, my mentor, you know, Bob Riley, who pioneered the procedure, would say, well, if you work for yourself two weeks, if you work for the government, take all six weeks off. The idea here is that if your idea of recovery is being able to eat a T-bone steak, then you're talking about two months. If your idea of recovery is being able to get on Facebook or Instagram and text your peers, that is the afternoon after surgery. I tell the patients this all the time. Above your nose and below your chin, you're entirely normal. So yes, we encourage them to walk quickly after surgery. 
I feed them within 30 minutes after the procedure because we found that out to be one of the key indicators of getting them out of the ICU, which, you know, 95% of my patients do not go to the ICU. And, uh, you know, uh, again, calling your friends, texting your friends and whatnot should not be uh, hampered uh, by the operation itself. If we could, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the procedure itself. If you could highlight some of the key points of the procedure, you made mention of the Laforte osteotomies, things like that. I sure will. Yeah. And I'm really glad you asked that. One of the key problems I've heard from my colleagues, you know, and from my good friends like Ryan Sousa and, and you know, Raj and everybody is that, hey, the MMA is great for the hypopharyngeal airway, but it screws up the nose. Yes, it does. Because when you advance the jaw bones and you rotate it up, right, you're actually reducing uh, nasal passage uh, space. And so when we looked at, actually, when I looked at old procedures, we looked at 300-some patients, a whopping 17% of these patients needed a septoplasty or a cosmetic nasal surgery after the MMA, and that's not okay. Because remember that sleep apnea is a dual problem. And I tell patients this all the time, and you should use this as well. It's a flow and a floppy problem. Flow meaning you want to establish nasal breathing. And a floppy, of course, refers to your hypopharyngeal airway and muscles. Okay, If you don't fix both of them, you're, you're going to be behind uh, the eight ball. So with the MMA surgery, very, very key point about the surgical algorithm. Again, you know, Lafort's not hard to learn. Neither is the uh, mandibular uh, advancement, the sagittal split uh, surgery. But the key thing that everybody misses is reestablishing the, the airway and the nasal airway. So once you advance the jaws and you rotate things up and you start plating the patient away, you want to contour the nasal bone. By the way, you have it in your hands. You know, if you've ever done a maxillary down fracture, the nasal floor is in your hands. And you can contour it so that it is widened. You can do a mega antrostomy. And you can really take down the vomer. You can do all those things and you can do a septoplasty. And we've decreased that, that, that rate of needing a post-operative nasal surgery to below 6%. And this is really important. So, uh, again, every, you know, you can read about Lafort surgery. And it's about the same everywhere. But, but the key about the Lafort, so the upper jaw, is that you need to reestablish nasal passage and the nasal breathing. Okay, what about the lower jaw? In oral surgical literature, believe it or not, they consider patients above the age of 32 to be high risk <laughs> for jaw surgery. Well, I can tell you that if I see a 32-year-old going through the MMA, I'm really happy, okay? Because my average patient is in their late 40s, early 50s. So what do you do there? So there are a couple of things. There are a lot of violent instruments used in maxillomandibular surgery that you don't want to use. You don't want to use rote disimpaction forceps. Because you're going to basically, and that's for the upper jaw, and, and what happens there is you're going to hurt the cribriform plate, you're going to affect their breathing afterwards, it is not the way to mobilize. The way to mobilize upper jaw advancement is not by pulling the upper jaw, but actually by rotating it sideways, and you do not need a violent instrument for that. For the lower jaw, you do not want to read, you know, like an oral surgery text and use what is called a Smith spreader. Basically, it's a violent instrument where you, if you go click and it basically tries to expand. And if you do that, you're going to have a pretty untoward fracture. Because what's one thing you lose in the mandible is marrow space as you age. And so what we use is a very controlled, you know, osteotomy that allows you to see the nerves, see the bone split, and make sure that your bone splits uh, properly. So I guess uh, the point I'm trying to make is that the technique that you want to use for your jaw surgery has to be a little bit you know, modified, if you will, compared to routine jaw surgery. But it works very well, and it's very safe. And those are sort of the key points. So let me summarize it one more time. For the upper jaw, 
you need to make sure that they have no septal deviation and no nasal obstruction. When you mobilize it, it's not about taking a violin instrument and yanking the jaw forward. It's actually very gently rocking it side to side to free up, you know, the attachments from pterygoids. Okay, coming back down to the lower jaw, uh, the key there is you want to make sure that you wedge this thing open very gently and move the jaw forward. Now, we published on this. You know, we, we looked at, well, is it patient factors? I mean, maybe their age and maybe their age either contributes to bad jaw uh, split before uh, you do the advancement. And unfortunately, it's not about the patients. It's about your surgical technique. So uh, if, you, if you do the surgical technique properly, uh, as I have described, then you are not really limited uh, to the age limit of the patients that you're doing the advancement. And just a practical question here, um, when we talk about the immediate post-operative period, you know, you mentioned that most of your patients actually aren't going to the ICU, which contradicts maybe some things that people might have read, or um, you talked about feeding quickly after surgery. Can you touch on what your post-operative management looks like? Yeah, John, I, I love your question here. It, it, it's a team approach. A couple things. Anesthesia has to help us out from the start. Yes. So what we do is we ask them to run under total intravenous TIVA, okay, if you will. And so they're running the patient under uh, propofol and remifentanil. Those are two things here. Propofol is great. It's anti-nausea anyway. And TIVA, so, so, so you're running them under propofol and remifentanil. That means you can quickly reverse that. Okay, Remy is great because you can quickly reverse that because you don't want airway obstruction post-op. And you know, so that's why you don't want to run, run them on their gas and you don't want to run them after things that uh, have a long tail, uh, so to speak, that, that are, you, know, you know, narcotic payments have a long tail. So anesthesia helps us out. My average MMA is about three hours in terms of length. So you don't want them under the table for too long. And then post-operatively, you want them to drink quickly. Now, one thing uh, that I must mention is this. Please don't wire your patients shut. And anybody who asks you that after jaw surgery, you have to wire the patient shut is really coming from a very previous generation. Okay? Because it is not about the MMF, the maxillary mandibular fixation, that keeps the jaws together. In fact, if you need a wire to keep your jaws together, your fixation is not very strong. But I know that's not going to happen because all of you have access to great material, you know, titanium plus, you know, fancy material from great companies that have great fixation plates. So if you fixate the patient properly, you do not need to wire the patient shut. And I don't. I put a couple of rubber bands and, and that's it. And I'll tell you why for two reasons. First, I'll tell you why we need the rubber bands. The rubber bands are not there to keep the jaw together. First of all, you can't use rubber bands to keep the jaw together. And two, if you need them, then something happened during surgery. Number two is the rubber bands are there to fight muscle memory. Remember that once you advanced it, uh, the jaws, the mandible and the maxilla has moved to a new position, but the, your muscles have yet to adapt. So your rubber bands are there to help the muscles lay down more subunits and adapt uh, from that perspective. But why rubber bands instead of wires and anything fancy like that? Why, why do my patients, they can open their mouth after surgery? You see, we are all trying to avoid the number one complication. And John, you know what that is, and that's airway complication. I've heard of centers where they've done a emergency trach for a post-MMA patient, but that's not necessary. Because if they can mouth breathe, I know if their nose gets plugged and, you know, I told you the sinus gets plugged and whatnot, but let the mouth breathe. Suction through their mouth, they're going to be okay. But in order to do that, you can't wire them. You know, I know you give patients wire cutters, but come on. I mean, it's even hard for me to cut through a patient in distress, right? By the time I go from my house to the hospital or from my resident to show up in the hospital, it's way too late. But with rubber bands, uh, they can breathe through the mouth. So they don't have an airway emergency. And if you think about it, 
right? We're, we're, we're talking about the quality of life surgery. So we cannot afford anything with an airway embarrassment. And in that sense, we want to do the best fixation we can and just manage with rubber bands, okay? So hence, again, the rubber band post-op is key. And that's what I use. In fact, uh, I've had a few not very compliant patients who decided to eat a cheeseburger seven days out of surgery because, you know, <laughs> rubber bands are pretty weak and they can just cut it out and they can do it. All right. I don't advise it. But what I mean is we cannot afford an airway situation. You, you never need to do a trach for an MMA patient. Even if you choose to use wires, cut the darn guy out and let the per, the patient breathe through the mouth and you're, you're fine. Okay. So, so that, that is really key, uh, from a post-op, uh, uh, you know, perspective. The, the ICU study is a bit of a, a sort of, um, a thing, you know, my mentors, when they started doing MMAs, they didn't have to uh, wire people for six weeks. That's a long time. So you're not surprised if they need to spend a day or two in the ICU. So that, that, that's okay. But we, we, we don't do that anymore. Okay. My patients actually right now, uh, after MMA surgery, we put them in, in, in guiding elastic bands. So elastic bands are rubber bands for like, you know, in a class two fashion. And they go to an ENT specific floor. Now, again, again, this is, you know, assuming in your hospital, you have a ward that you send your routine airway patients to. Okay. But if you do that, uh, for younger patients, I can send them out in one day. And in older patients, I can send them out in two days. Now you're saying, well, uh, Stanley, are you just trying to you know, push them out of the hospital. No, it's not that. You see, we are, at least in the U.S., right, we are quite limited by what our insurance companies will approve of. And increasingly, they see our MMA patients the same as a 17-year-old getting jaw surgery, and they think they can get out in one day. And, and you have to kind of, you know, really document well uh, if you want to keep them for two days. Okay, so in that sense, you really want to optimize who you send to the ICU and who you don't. And I think we have a very, very good protocol for that. But uh, what I want to stress here is, is a team effort. Anesthesia needs to help you. You need to do fast surgery and you need to feed the patients quickly. So I, I tend to go feed my patients, you know, uh, like in the morning, I would do an MMA in the afternoon, I'll do a hypoglossal and in between I'll go feed the patient. Because when the patient realizes, oh, I can swallow, I can drink, well, that's key because their pain meds will go via that route. And as you know, the oral pain meds have a longer uh, half-life at least than your, your IV Dilaudids or whatnot, okay? So th those, are, those are very, very key points. And I'll qualify this next question um, with the obvious note that, you know, defining surgical success and OSA management is controversial. But when you think about talking to patients about how successful is MMA. Um, how do you think about that question? Or how do, how do you talk, talk to patients about that question? Well, John, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't ask that question, but, but you did ask the most important question. Look at the new Stanford protocol in a new way. The reason why this protocol came to being is that there, there, there are a couple of things. The new improved precision uh, surgery protocol for OSA, okay, um, has three key points. Uh, number one is characterization of static and dynamic airway phenotypes. Number two is identification of new anatomic risk factors along with their solutions. So we're talking about maxillary narrowness and expanding their upper jaw. Number three is utilization of technology that can improve safety and efficacy of your classic procedures when we talked about virtual surgical planning. Okay, so we talked about that. But let's not forget one thing. This is elective surgery, right? So the patients choose what they want to go through. Sometimes I walk into a clinic room and the patient goes, do the biggest thing you got and I want to swing for a home run. All right, I'm going to shoot for the MMA. Patient comes in and says, I'm a kind of a basic kind of guy. All right, we're going to do, you know, nasal surgery, CPAP, nasal surgery, palatal surgery, oral appliance, nasal surgery, blah, blah, blah. You know, so, so you know, there, there are stages uh, uh, to uh, all of uh, these things. There's no such thing as surgical success. You know, what we use as surgical success that we publish with is very artificial. 
you know, it's something along the lines of if you have very severe sleep apnea, you're going for the AHI below 20. But we all know that there are a lot of young patients with an AHI below 20 that are highly symptomatic. And the goal of treatment is not about the AHI. In a pediatric patient, the goal of treatment is about getting the kid out of mouth breathing so the kid doesn't develop a narrow jaw and a hypoplastic mandible and peeing in bed, you know, within a recess until age 11. In a teenager, it's about someone who's not self-medicating. And this is a really a big deal. And I hope, you know, some of the residents who's listening to this will pick up on this. The teenagers are some of the most underserved population for sleep apnea, right? So they may self, you know, medicate with coffee, right? And then uh, to, to tone down, they might uh, use cannabis or whatever. You know these teenagers exist. And if you don't treat them early on, then they'll end up with the patients that we see in clinic every day. But you know this was an ongoing process. Uh, and so these are these are really, you know, really, really important points to look at, you know, where they are in 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 you know, in in the treatment phase. But let's walk away from surgical success rates because all that allows you is to publish a paper. What you really want is a treatment success. And that may be MMA plus hypoglossal nerve stim. That may be MMA followed by CPAP. And you're like, well, then why don't you just use CPAP? Well, the guy couldn't wear it before CPAP. Uh, you know, I have a patient with, an, with a BMI above 40, but he will not do bariatric. The guy's a chef. So, okay, I'll do the MMA. And then he says he can use CPAP following. And a year later, the guy couldn't be more healthy. So, Let's, let's, you know, as surgeons, you know, we have to realize that we are part of a team process to get the patient better. And it is about treatment success and symptomatic uh, improvement, way more so than our ability to publish a paper and saying, well, because I advanced to this patient a different way, or I throw a different stitch, and my surgical success is better. First of all, the evidence for those papers are low. And it's not what the patients are seeking. And I guess the last question I wanted to ask you about, just pragmatically, um, when you're talking about follow-up for these patients, how are you designing that? Or, what, you know, what interval are they coming back? When are you getting a repeat sleep study? Do you get a, a dice afterwards? Love your question. Love your question. Okay, a couple of things. Um, pragmatically, you can do, uh, the way I do my MMA is that we also throw in a few uh, suspension wiring to take the stress off the plates. Uh, because if you rely everything on the plates, you think things are really rigid, but the force, as you know, the upper airway muscles is such that, you know, they may resorb. So we, we use some old school techniques with wiring and, and, and that's great. So when I take out the wires, I will do a dice and look at the airway change. And this is also where all the literature uh, from the resolution of concentric collapse and lateral pharyngeal collapse comes from. Okay, the MMA has a very interesting post-op uh, trajectory. Here's what happens: you open up the airway, patient is going to come back and tell you, "Oh, I started dreaming again. I feel great." Don't get too excited, because what's going to happen next is they're going to have a little bit of a dip in their sleep quality, but they will improve. So, how does this work? Let's go back to the beginning, and I'm so glad you asked this question. The MMA is a, a muscle-oriented procedure. So when you initially do the MMA, you open up the airway. It's kind of like the patient's getting CPAP for the first time or those wearing CPAP who can you know, tolerate it. You get the REM rebound. You start dreaming again. You sleep well. Great. But the muscles are still weak. So about two months later, they're going to have a slight dip. And when you look at my, my, my mentors, you know, Nelson Powell and Bob Riley, when they get that sleep study at six months mark, they get very diverse results. But when they get it at, at one year mark, the MMA is that successful surgery that we all know about. And the reason is the muscles have readapted and strengthened. And number two, they have communicated to the brain that it's safe. You know, uh, patients, you know, I, I tell them all, this all the time. One of the most common side effects after the MMA is actually insomnia. And, and I'll tell you why. They go to sleep for two hours and they wake up and they can't go back to sleep again. 
And the reason is the brain is so used to open, you know, waking the patient up and opening up the airway. You and I know, John, that we've opened up the airway, but the brain doesn't know that. And it takes a while for that coordination to uh, occur. So the best time to assess your post-MMA patient is one year out because you have gone through the phase of opening up the airway and the muscles becoming stronger and the muscles communicating neurologically with the things that are very complicated beyond my uh, understanding, but I know (laughs) they're there, which is the neuronal control because the brain has to trust you that your airway is better. And so the best way to assess your MMA is one year out, not six months out, not three months out. And that's key. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up all the questions I had for you today, Dr. Liu. But was there anything else that we didn't talk about that you thought is maybe worth mentioning? A couple of things. Um, And John, thank you again for, for, you know, uh, running this podcast, because I can't think of another you know, the MMA and hypoglossal nerve stim, two of the most iconic procedures for sleep surgery. Here's, here's what I want to say. The MMA makes everything you do better. And why do I say that? I'll give you an example. I had a 65-year-old man with an AHI of 145. He doesn't want to wear a CPAP, so we've gone that out of the way. And the oral appliance is not going to take care of a guy with an AHI of 145. I don't know what to do for him. I really don't. He's thin. He's not obese. He just happens to be like the tallest man you know. All right? He's really tall with a long neck. And when he comes to my clinic, and I I do tend to fall behind because I give every patient, you know, an hour of of time to kind of go through the whole thing. and, And by the time I get to him, he's always asleep. And I told him, I said, listen, you know, I have no choice. But I think you're 65. You have an age of 145. The most predictable thing I can do for you surgically is going to be a combination of MMA and hypoglossal nerve stim. And guess what? That's exactly what we did for him. And my MMA for him is very conservative. I only did a centimeter, which, of course, for most centers will be big, but I usually routinely do more. But anyway, I I just did a centimeter for him. But I told him this is never going to be enough. We're going to have to do a hypoglossal nerve stim. And he, he's like, okay, I understand that. And we explained all that. And so we did the MMA. And the initial post-op results encouraging. We brought him from 145 down to 25. But I know that's not long-lasting. If, if, if he were, uh, uh, you know, 22, uh, maybe we'll just leave him at that. All right? But, but, but he's not. So, so he went from 145 to 22. And we did the hypoglossal nerve stim. And we did this whole thing within one year. And he ended up with an AHF3, obviously with the hypoglossal nerve stim. And uh, I remember post-op with him. Yes, sorry, <laughs> I was running late again. But a uh, gentleman was reading a book and feeling great. Two things. You never want to wait until a guy who is 65 years old or a lady who is 65 years old with severe sleep apnea before you treat him. You treat the patient as early as you can. But if you must treat him that late in the game, sleep surgery is in a very cool era. Because with things like a combination of the MMA and upper airway stimulation, hypoglossal nerve stimulation, you saw that what we were able to do with a gentleman like that, which I think in previous generations, it was really difficult. No, the guy did not have big tonsils. The guy did not have heavy palate. He's just a thin guy with a long neck. All right. So one thing for the surgeons who are listening in on the podcast is that we have to walk away from any one procedure being the only go-to. It really needs to be combination of surgery or and non-surgical uh, procedures or multiple like different kinds of surgeries. And don't forget, by the way, your patient chooses what surgery they want to do. Your patient might be a slugger. They want to go for the home run. Or they're a basic kind of guy and they want to go from first base to second to third to home. Okay, You have to walk with them that path. Uh, uh, you know, uh, according to, you know, their, their preferences. So never before is sleep surgery more exciting 
because you have the tools in your hands to combine the various procedures. And I just caution that what you want to do is stay very humble and know that all we can do is address the critical uh, negative airway closing pressure. That's for one. And for two, being able to combine various entities in order to achieve treatment success, not, not surgical success. I know that's how we publish, but you don't want to do that anymore. You want treatment uh, success, okay? And so if you can take away, if there's only one thing to take away from this entire podcast, and I know it's focused on the MMA, but it's this, uh, and that is treatment success is what we're going for. If it requires MMA to get there, we ought to do it. If it requires MMA plus other procedures, we ought to do it. Um, But ultimately, it is treatment success uh, that we go for. And if we think about it that way, Remember that sleep surgery is not cancer, okay? This is not cancer surgery, which is reconstructive in nature. Okay, You take out the disease organ, you put in a fibula or whatever, and this is not that. Sleep surgery is functional surgery. What you want to do is reestablish nasal breathing, reestablish proper genioglossus muscle function, reestablish dilator muscle function, and any surgery that could get you there, you, you do that. And so it's about restoration, but it's not reconstruction. So if you continue to think about sleep surgery in that way, uh, you know, I expect a lot of you to be able to come up with innovative ideas, more minimally invasive uh, surgery, and achieve what is really the most popular course on campus we have today, uh, which is a course called Sleep and Dreams. All right. Because again, as you know, if you can't get into that deep sleep, yeah, you, you can't achieve uh, your dreams. Uh, and, and on that note, I'll end this podcast. And, and John, thank you very much for leading me through a topic that I am, you know, fiercely uh, passionate about. Yeah, well, we thank you for your time and being here today. So in summary of today's episode, maxillary mandibular advancement surgery is really one of the classic procedures used in the surgical management of obstructive sleep apnea. There's several goals of surgery, but overarchingly, it's important to be mindful of maintaining the patient's cosmesis, preserving or improving their occlusion. And then the way with which MMA actually even works is this idea of stabilization of the upper airway and lateral pharyngeal wall, preventing the lateral wall collapse and preventing that concentric collapse of the velum. And so that's beyond just what you see in a lateral cephalometric x-ray, for example, where there's expansion of the retrolingual airspace. It's really more about the muscle dynamics of the upper airway. So thinking about indications for surgery, there's really several, and ultimately the patient decides this is elective surgery and there's nothing that is the standard of care or the only option that they have. But some of the key indications that you'll read about is one, patients with OSA and pre-existing dental facial deformities. Two, um, if, if they still have severe OSA, such as a HI greater than 65, in patients who have already failed phase one surgery, for example, palate surgery or tongue base reduction, for example. And then three, if drug-induced sleep endoscopy reveals that the patient has complete concentric collapse at the velum, as well as lateral pharyngeal wall collapse. There's um, really no absolute contraindication to MMA, but things you'll hear about and read about is that older the patient gets, the um, more challenging that procedure is to perform, but really it's very feasible um, to do through the patient's 60s even. And then generally speaking, patients tend to do very well with the surgery long-term, especially when selected appropriately. And you'll read published rates of surgical success, um, even though it's a controversial topic, of about 85% and surgical cures being an AHI less than five in about 40% of patients. So really tolerated quite well with good outcomes. Last portion of the podcast here, I'll ask a couple of questions, allow for some time for you to think about the answer and then give the answer in response. So first question, mechanistically, how does MMA address upper airway obstruction in OSA? So answer here is, you know, historically it was attributed to the improvement of the retrolingual airway, which is true, but really we've come to appreciate that the primary driver surrounds stabilization of the upper airway at the lateral pharyngeal wall, preventing lateral wall collapse and preventing that concentric collapse at the velum. Second question, in patients with OSA, what are the three overarching indications to pursue MMA? 
before we get into that, obviously keeping in mind that this is elective surgery. Um, this isn't a all or nothing. You have to do this if these are present, but it's things to be mindful of. One, OSA in a patient with a pre-existing dentofacial deformity. Two, a patient with severe OSA, like an AHI greater than 65, who has previously failed phase one surgery, for example, palate surgery. Or three, if the patient undergoes drug-induced sleep endoscopy and it demonstrates complete concentric collapse at the velum and lateral pharyngeal wall collapse. And last question, what is one of the most feared complications of MMA and how do you avoid it? So the most feared complication is acute airway compromise postoperatively. And the best way to avoid this is not locking the patient down in MMF because it's unnecessary, as we discussed. All right, well, that'll wrap things up for today. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.